Amen. So good. You can be seated this morning while you're, while you're sitting down. Just greet that person next to you. Wish them a happy Easter really quick. Say hello. And I'll invite you to pull out your Bible this morning, if you would. If you don't have a Bible and you can pull out a device, we'll also have the scriptures on the screen. But open with me this morning to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to go this morning. I also want to just say that we have a video venue room open and there's more space in there. So if at some point you're feeling uncomfortable with how crowded it is in here, you're welcome to head down there. There's a little more space. Here's what's happening. Uh, This weekend around our church, our theme for our Easter weekend has been the theme, Love Came Down. And here's what we've been doing. We've been pointing out the connection between the central elements of the gospel message, so the suffering of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ, the burial of Christ, we've been pointing out the connection between those things and the love of God. So if you were with us on Good Friday, and I hope many of you were, if not, you can go back and watch that online. It was a beautiful service. We just looked at how when we, when we behold the cross, we're seeing the definition of God's love. We talked about all these things that happen on the cross that show us his love, that love covers over sin, that love conquers evil, that love shows us the way in this world. And so it was a marvelous service. And now we come to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. And I have a message for you this morning that I believe the Lord has really put on my heart. And I wanna say right out of the gate, I do not believe that anyone is here by accident. I believe that the message I have is for you. It's, it's what I want to do this morning is I want to make the connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the love of God. And I have this sentence that I've been working with. It's like the one thing that I hope you will hear before you leave this room. And the sentence is this. The most important thing that a person could discover about the resurrection is the love that made it a reality. The divine love that was behind it, the divine love that motivated it. Because here's the thing, friends, if you can discover that love, it will ignite faith in your heart. It will flood your life with more joy, more peace, more hope than you could ever imagine. It's what I want this morning for so many of you. And so a lot of times on Easter Sunday, we, when we come to this moment, we sort of, we, we answer the question, if. We talk about the if of the, resurre- the resurrection. Did it actually happen? Is there any evidence for it historically? And we'll often preach a sermon where we'll sort of lay out all of the historical evidence. And there is immense evidence. But that's not this sermon. Sometimes when we come on Easter Sunday, we preach on the what of the resurrection, talking about all of the implications, and I like to get nerded out on that theologically and tell you how profound the resurrection is, but that's not this sermon. This sermon, I want to talk about the why of the resurrection. Why? Because that's, that's where the power is. If you can discover why, it can change your life. And let me tell you something, friends. It's about God's love. And so to do that today, I get to go to arguably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And many of you know where I'm already going. John 
chapter 3, verse 16. Will you turn there? This is the most memorized verse, the most preached verse, the most famous verse. It's an incredible verse, and I just want to read it over you. I want to savor it with you. I'm going to leave it up there for a while so that you can just let it soak your heart. Here is what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's marvelous. It's, there's a reason why this verse is so cherished by Christians all around the world. I cannot tell you how many Christians I have talked to who told me it was when I read that verse that faith got ignited in my heart and I became a Christian. It's masterful, it's eloquent. It's been said that in this one sentence, we get the greatest subject ever, God, the greatest love ever, the greatest gift ever, the Son, and the greatest rescue ever. Or as Max Lucado once put it, John 3.16 is a 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything about the Bible, return here, because we all need the reminder. Astounding. The most preached verse Ever. And you know what I realized this week? I have never in 20 plus years of ministry preached a sermon devoted to this verse. That is a travesty. Shame on me. Okay, that stops today, by the way. It's the most familiar verse to people outside of the church. And yet, did you know that on January 8th, 2009, over 94 million Americans Googled John 3.16 to find out what it says. Did you know this this story? This is the story of Tim Tebow, the famous quarterback for the Florida Gators, who also was a devout follower of Jesus. And in his junior year, the year leading up to his national championship, he decided that when he did his kind of eye blacks, which is when the football players will put sort of a black line under their cheeks so they can see better. And a lot of times they'll write something in, they'll write the name of their mom or their zip code or something like that. And Team Tebow said, I'm gonna write something that matters to me. So he put Philippians 4.13 on there for most of the season, which is, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you know what happened? The Gators started winning and Gator Nation got really superstitious about it and they were selling Philippians 4.13. So Tim Tebow said, okay, we're coming to the national championship game. I got to change things up. I got to put something on there that really matters. I want to get to the heart of my Christian faith. And he put John 3.16 on his eye blacks and he walked out onto national television. And you know what happened? 94 million Americans Googled John 3.16 to see what it says. Isn't that incredible? Amazing. So it's obviously not famous enough. We have to make it a little more famous, all right? It's the most memorized verse by Christians. And yet, I promise you, if I polled the average group of Christians and said, what is the immediate context of this verse? Very few of them would know what it is. And yet, it's the context that makes the verse pop with power and glory. So it's the context I'm going to take you to 
this morning. But first, can I just show you what's happening here? In the logic of Scripture, just look at the verse for a moment. In the logic of Scripture, the entrance of Jesus Christ into our world is grounded in the love of God. That's the connection. When John says that God gave his only son, he's talking about the basic elements of the gospel message. Christ crucified and Christ risen. And John is saying all of that can be traced back to one ultimate origin. God's love. And friends, do you realize how important this is? Did you know that we're living in a time where there has never been more confusion about how to define love? Never. We don't know how to define love. One of our problems is that we have one English word that we use to describe an entire host of emotions. The Greeks, in Koine Greek, they had almost 12-year words that all get translated into the English word love. Isn't that interesting? But we use one word to describe all. I've been known to say, I love Jesus Christ with all of my heart. I love my wife, Kathy. I love German soccer, and I do, okay? And I love Golden Graham cereal, and who doesn't? It's, it's obvious, right? But surely, okay, surely I'm describing different emotions there. The difference between my love for cold cereal and my love for my bride or my savior. So we have a problem. And even with that one word love, we don't know, we don't agree on how to define it. So over the years, I've collected all kinds of quotes out there, and there's a lot of them about people taking a stab at love. Some of them are eloquent. Some of them are philosophical. Some of them are just downright hilarious. Can I share a couple of these with you this morning? I love these. Okay, here's one. Love is like oxygen. If you get too much, you get high. If you don't get enough, you die. And it's also highly flammable. I like that. Put that, you know, frame that, okay? Love is when you give him the last piece of bacon. Amen. Okay. Love at first sight is often remedied by the second look. Remember that. <clears throat> Love is nature's way of tricking humans into procreating. That's very pragmatic, very scientific. Okay. And then I like this. Love is when you throw your beloved daughter off a cliff to obtain the soul stone. Okay. Marvel comic fans out there. There you go. You cannot buy love, but you can pay heavily for it. Amen. Okay. I'll be here all week. Here's, but here's the real question. How does God define love? I mean, that's the only thing that matters. And you know what John 3.16 tells us? God defines love not with words, not with a proposition, not with a pithy sentence. God defines love with a person, the perfect person. And if you could discover it, it would ignite faith in your life. There's two things in this verse that John wants us to know about God's love. And I'd love it if you wrote these down because I, I would love for you to think about these after you leave. Two aspects of the love of God that we need to know about. The first aspect is the intensity of it. And the second aspect 
is the cost of it. And I just want to talk about those for a few moments with you, and then we'll worship some more. So the intensity. Look, John, he does not say, you know, God kind of loved the world. I mean, you know, he was reluctant. No, John says, for God so loved the world. Do you know what that tells me? There's love. And then there is love. And when you read that sentence, one of the first things you realize is that this verse, John is in mid-thought. That word for is a connecting word. It's a logic word. It says there was something else that John was talking about. And John 3.16 is now a moment where he interprets what's happened. He summarizes it. And so in order to get the full power of John 3.16, you have to go back and say, what's happening before it? Which I want to do now. So if you have a Bible, we're going to spend some time with verses 14 and 15. Before I put them up, let me just say, what's happening is that Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And some of you, if you've been around the church, you know the story. Nicodemus has come at night. He's come under the cover of darkness. So he's a leader who apparently is worried about his reputation. He does not want to be seen with Jesus. So he comes at night. They're having a conversation. They're talking about salvation. And Jesus uses a metaphor for salvation that he calls the new birth, being born again. And Nicodemus cannot understand, and he, he wonders, what do you mean, does a, does a person go back into his mother's womb to be born a second time? And Jesus, in frustration, says, how, Nicodemus, how as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, can you not understand this? But Jesus doesn't give up. He says, okay, I'm going to take another, I'm going to come at this from a different direction. And here's what he says. John 3, verse 14. Okay, now before I, before I read this, I just need to warn you. What I'm about to read is extremely odd. Striking. Like Shocking because Jesus is about to compare himself to a snake, okay? This is a very risky move. This would have been very odd for a, a Jewish person to hear this. And we know that Jesus could have gone into all kinds of other comparisons in the Old Testament to prove his point, but for some reason he goes to this one. And the reader should be thinking, Jesus, what are you doing here? So here's what he says. Now, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's the, that's the moment where the quotes of Jesus, and, and now John takes over in verse 16, and John says, okay, now, for God so loved the world that he gave his one. John says, that is what you needed to hear to understand the love of God. And the reader is thinking, Jesus, you just compared yourself to a snake. I mean, that's a risky move. So what's happening? What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a couple things that I think will be helpful. Here's the first thing you need to know. This is an Old Testament reference that Nicodemus would have immediately recognized. 
he knew this story, he would have immediately remembered and he would have remembered every detail. And not only that, this moment when Jesus makes this comparison, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So Jesus is saying, I, I'm the serpent. Nicodemus would have immediately said, okay, I totally get it. And not only that, it probably would have impacted him. And you know what? It did impact him because we know by the end of John's gospel that Nicodemus becomes a follower, a worshiper of Jesus. So whatever's happening in this, Jesus knows how to get through. Nicodemus knew this story and here's the story. And you can go back later today and read it. Numbers chapter 21. The people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and a plague of serpents enters the camp and begins biting the people. It's this really odd graphic story. They had been complaining. They had been sinful. They had been disobedient. And so God allows a plague of serpents into the camp in punishment for sin. And the people are suffering and they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, intercede, cry out to God, pray for us, for God to deliver us. And Moses says, okay. And he prays. And I'll just read the two verses in Numbers 21 that will help you the most. Here's what happened. The Lord said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And it's this scandalous display of God's mercy because the people, if we could have been there, we wouldn't. The people were so, dis, the sin, the horror, their ungratefulness, it was unreal. And yet in a display of God's love and mercy, he provides a remedy. But notice something. The remedy is a symbol of the very thing that's plaguing them a bronze serpent. And in the New Testament, the cross is a symbol of the very thing that is plaguing our world, sin and evil and death. So in the Old Testament, we have a, a symbol of God's punishment over sin and evil. And in the New Testament, we have a symbol of God's punishment over sin and evil. But that symbol, in that moment in the New Testament, God does not punish the people who are sinners. He punishes an innocent sin bearer in a display of love and mercy that should take our breath away. And it did take Nicodemus's breath away. He couldn't believe it. Here's the second thing you need to know. The only thing that the children of Israel had to do in the wilderness was look at it. That's all they had to do. So the, Moses didn't say, okay, look at it and then take a couple of aspirin and call me in the morning. You know, He didn't say, look at it, rub some snake oil on the bite. No, he says, the only thing you have to do to be healed is look. 
Does that sound absurd? It should. It sounded absurd to them. They thought, are you kidding? Now, why is what's happening here? Here's what's happening. God is triggering faith. Belief. He triggered belief in a promise because there's no natural reason, no logical reason why looking at a bronze serpent could heal a person from snake poison. That does not make sense logically. So the people of Israel had a decision to make. I'm either going to trust God in this moment and his promise or I'm not. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. I'm going to come back to this. I want to just kind of, I want to just put that little pebble in your shoe and just have you sit with that for a minute and I'm going to finish with that again. Here's the, here's the last thing you need to know. This phrase in verse 15, which maybe we can put back up there, this phrase lifted up. When it says, as Moses lifted up in 14, the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That phrase, okay, is not speaking only or even primarily about the cross. That little phrase is actually about the resurrection. It's, it's a Greek word that literally means to lift someone up to an exalted place. Anytime you would use that word to lift someone up, it means you were lifting them up to a place of glory and honor where they could be seen and revered. And every person hearing Jesus in that moment would think of that meaning. The Son of Man must be lifted up. But here's the thing. Every time John uses that phrase in the gospel, he takes that meaning to be exalted and honored and revered. And he pairs it every time with Jesus physically being hoisted onto a cross. And John says, in the economy of God, those two things are the same. Being exalted and the son of God being lifted onto a cross. In God's economy, the way up is to go down. In God's economy, the way to glory is, goes to the path of humility. In God's economy, the way to glory and the way to a cross are the same road. See, we think Jesus' cross was his humiliation, his going down, and his resurrection was his going up. But John says, no, it's the same journey. The way up goes through a cross, but it doesn't end there. The cross is left unoccupied. And so is the tomb. And then Jesus keeps going to the seat of glory. My friends, can I tell you something? An occupied cross does not show us anything about the love of God if it's still occupied. An occupied tomb does not have the power to save. What saves is an empty cross. What saves is an empty tomb. What saves is Christ traveling through that, through the cross, off the cross, out of the tomb in glory and seated at the right hand of the Father. And John says, if you behold that in faith, it has the power to ignite joy and hope a new birth. The intensity. 
of his love. But then one more, and this will just take a moment. I want to talk to you about the cost of his love. And I don't have to take long with this because you already, you already get this. John 3.16, the father, look what the father gave. What did he give? He gave his very best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, some of you were raised with a different translation of that. Does this sound familiar to some of you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You were raised with that. Sometimes it comes through begotten, New King James. Sometimes it comes through only. Neither of those are actually the perfect translation. It's a hard word to translate, monogenes. It means, here's what it ultimately means. It means something like this, something that is one of a kind, totally unique, something that is in a class by itself. This is what God gave. It's kind of like when an artist finishes a masterpiece and the artist signs their name by etching it into the canvas. And when you can see that etching on a painting, do you know what you know immediately? This painting is one of a kind. There is not another one on the planet. If there is, it was plagiarized or it's a print, okay? I have about five or six one of a kind paintings in my office and they all have the signature C.K. McMurray, Kathy K. McMurray. Because what happens is I walk past her when she's painting and I see this masterpiece and I say, Kathy, can I have that artwork? And she'll often say, absolutely not. So then what I do is I badger her for months and I please, please, and then finally she gives it to me. And that's how much I know she loves me, okay? But here's the problem. This is where this analogy breaks down because unlike Jesus, there are other paintings in the world but there's nothing in our world even remotely like Jesus. My friends, he is in a class all by himself. And this is how you can know God loves the world. And this is how you can know God loves you. He gave his totally unique, one of a kind, eternally beloved, original son to be lifted up in our place to take our sin, to be laid in a tomb. He walked out in victory, now seated at the right hand of the Father. And here's the most astounding thing about it, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll end here. Here's the crazy thing. In the wilderness, the only thing that the people had to do was look. That's all they had to do. That's the only thing they contributed. God did the rest. And John 3.16 says, here's the only thing you have to do. Believe. Just behold. Jesus on a cross, yes, but not still there, an unoccupied cross. Jesus in a tomb, absolutely. He died a physical death, but he's not there anymore. He walked out in victory. Behold, an empty cross, an empty tomb, and Christ seated in the throne of glory. And I promise you, the moment you believe that, your life will never be the same. It will transform your life 
from this day forward for the good. How I hope you'll consider it this morning. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and I'm gonna say a prayer about that. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray like that. And so will you bow your heads with me as the worship team comes? And I'd like to say a prayer. Lord, how we thank you for Jesus, one of a kind. There's no one else like him, fully human, fully divine, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. For so many of us, Father, we have looked to Jesus with faith in our hearts and it has changed us. New birth, new eternal life. But I I am aware, Lord, there are some, perhaps many this morning here who this is their first time hearing about Jesus or perhaps they've heard before but have something has kept them away something has kept them reluctant and realizing this is making sense and so if that's you and if this moment feels like a moment where belief is erupting in your heart here's what you do it's it's a very simple prayer that you pray i will pray it and you can pray along with me in the quiet of your heart it goes like this lord i believe I believe what I'm hearing about Jesus. I believe John 3.16, that you love this world perfectly, intensely, and it costs you everything. I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin. I believe he rose again. I believe he's Savior and Lord. I believe he's risen King And I put my hope in Christ today. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have in him. And it's our great joy to worship King Jesus this morning. And we pray together in his name. Everyone said, amen.